Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. I'm super excited for today's episode with Nate Denning. Nate is a physical therapist and founder of Integrated Performance, and he previously worked at Exos and the Minnesota Twins and did a sports residency, and he's been with so many amazing individuals and amazing groups, and he is a phenomenal physical therapist himself. And today we're focusing in on baseball specifically, return to sport criteria and progression criteria. So we talk about a variety of different assessments and other tools that you can use while working with your athletes to determine readiness to return to sport. And we also talk a lot about the importance of subjective readiness in addition to what you see objectively. Nate, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on today, man. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Super excited myself. Uh, Thank you for uh, inviting me. So for people who maybe aren't familiar with you, or maybe they haven't seen your past work with the Minnesota Twins or your current work and what you're doing in the private practice setting, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all that you've done? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we can go kind of back to kind of by, by history of um, graduated PT school at Indiana University up at where I'm at right now in Indianapolis. Uh, I spent um, three years there, of course, for the DPT program. And then went down to Evansville for their their sport residency with the guys out of there with uh, Phil Plisky, Kyle Massel, um, Bethany Humer, Humer, and a, a bunch of good good great clinicians down there and learned from them. Got some mentoring, and that's where I kind of entered the sports realm a little bit as far as um, got to do some cool experiences doing some testing, FMS testing for uh, D1 universities, and then also some Major League Baseball teams organizations and then some other other organizations from there yeah i was gonna say i spent, uh, spent about two or three years there or in evansville after i finished or about probably about two years after i finished the residency down there just working in an outpatient clinic as a clinic manager and then went down to pensacola to work for exos which is a which is a human human performance company um which do a lot of did a lot of uh, NFL combine training and work with a bunch of our like SOCOM, SOCOM guys, special operations guys, and some uh, professional athletes in the uh, the off season. And yeah. then from there, yeah, go ahead. I was Dan. gonna say that's just awesome. That's a really incredible experience thus far. And you know, you mentioned guys like Phil and Kyle. I mean, they are some of the best of the best when it comes to the sports round. So you've certainly been in great company this entire time. Yeah, I owe I owe them a huge thanks for everything that I do, and still still talk with them a, a lot, obviously, and trying to get pick their brain on a lot of things because there's some there's some fabulous minds down there in Evansville. Yeah, definitely. And then you're kind of starting to transition there into what you did professionally, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I spent spent about two and a half years down in Exos, uh, just as a just as the clinic manager down there for uh, the Pensacola location. Like I said, most of our most of our athletes were either in uh, off-season training for training for their respective sport, or our kind of military population doing some training and rehab at the same time. And then uh, the other big big part of our our time was the NFL Combine. So we would have anywhere between thirty to forty guys transitioning from their college season to NFL preparing for the NFL Combine. So we would we would kind of treat them and rehab them if they had any injuries and then also train them to, to uh, get prepared for the combine experience. So essentially their, their interview to the NFL. 
So did that for about two and a half years. That's awesome. Walk me through that process of kind of being like a PT and a strength coach at the same time for high level athletes, if you can, Nate. Yeah. And I would say I was working alongside a lot of the strength coaches there. So it wasn't, I didn't, I wouldn't say that I was programming, but I was picking their brain and we would kind of, um, like I would say, like bridge the gap between rehab and performance. So typically what I would do, if there's a guy that was injured that wasn't in strength training yet, we would, I would rehab him like, like you would typically think of, but then they're, they're running at such a high level capacity as far as uh, getting their 40, 40 to the tip top shape, getting the mechanics down and everything like that. If got, a guy was transitioning, I would kind of help help with that transition stage so as soon as they're they're kind of out of pain and everything there i would be taking them through a few of the movement skills sessions uh just like marching skipping resisted running and stuff like that until they could almost um and then some of the strength training stuff as well if they weren't ready to integrate into the higher level higher level training so i would kind of off offload the strength coaches who were kind of kind of operating at a max capacity as well so i would kind of kind of do the little lower level modify their lifts and everything that they were doing to match up how, how the athlete was looking in rehab and then how they were kind of moving as well so that they would, they would get the full experience of, of where, where training should meet where they're at in their rehab process. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's really ultimately the future of, you know, PT interventions or just general health and wellness and fitness rec um, interventions for high level athletes is kind of blending or blurring the lines between PT, AT, strength and condition, and kind of bringing everyone together on the same page. Because, um, you know, the more eyes you have, the better. But also, I think the better the outcomes are, uh, especially in the high-level athletes like that. You know, that slight difference that you can get by bringing everyone together, maybe it makes 1% of a difference. But that 1% in a high-level athlete is the difference between winning and losing on yeah. most of the occasions. Hundred percent. There's there's definitely times where even for the healthy guys that weren't necessarily getting rehab, like a, a great thing like we did, like every everybody was under one roof in that in that location. So like I was treating it was almost like an almost like a training room experience ish. But the great thing of that building was our PT tables were literally there's no there's no barrier between the, the PT room, the PT tables, and the strength room. So there was no wall. There was no there was no door you had to walk through. It was literally, hey, you can get off the you get off the table and you can walk over and and do your do your set of of squats or deadlift or anything like that. Or and then the, the also the tables were lined up right along right along the windows of the out of outside where they were doing all their movement skills. So we could if we were working on somebody and a guy that, that we were working on and was doing their movement skills, we could look out the window and see what they were doing. So uh it was it was a truly integrative, uh, integrated system. And then when we were talking to the strength coaches, as far as like what they were working on, if they were trying to get full full extension on their backside and during acceleration, we'd line up, look at their move, see how they would move, see if they're missing any hip extension, and then kind of kind of adjust what we needed to so that athlete could get the best that they that they could. Yeah, that's really awesome. And you know, as we're talking here, I realized that you know a lot goes into the evaluation and treatment and ultimately return to sport if the athlete's injured you know significantly enough uh, especially at the high level athlete realm and that's something that you have ex that you have extensive experience with uh, working with you know what you did in residency to what you did 
and the higher levels there up to the MLB level. And now you're continuing to do in private practice there, Nate. So I know most of your experience re uh, revolves around baseball and football and, you know, different sports like that. So walk me through, if you're going to be working with one of these athletes and, you know, say they have something significant, maybe it's an ACL tear or a shoulder surgery, like a labrum repair, rotator cuff repair, whatever it is, something that keeps them out of sport for an extended period of time, uh, and then they ultimately need to return back to that sport. Walk me through where we start in that process outside of the you know, typical stuff you hear about initial rehab post-op, right? Like, I think most people understand the quad sets and most people yeah. understand, you know, the passive range of motion of a shoulder. But from a big picture overarching theme that you've had to, you know, walk yourself, that you've had to explore yourself, where do we usually start that process at from your eyes? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's nothing... I would say there's nothing like too, too sexy about the beginning stuff. Um, it's literally just trying to get that, um, get that body part moving again, get the body part moving and then restoring your natural biomechanics, your, your arthrokinematics and everything of the same, of the same, same thing. So decrease swelling, uh, increase range of motion and get, and create some muscle activation at the very acute stage where somebody is just post-surgery or anything like that. I mean, that's, li that's literally what we're, what we're trying to accomplish. So, I said, there's nothing, nothing groundbreaking with that, but just being, being on top of everything there. So like you were saying for, um, for like, we can use an ACL for an example on that. Uh, I mean, you were talking just earlier before this about uh, a knee injury post-op client that I was seeing that I, I saw for the first time and she was seven weeks post-op. Uh, when I first saw her, she, she was, she knew what a quad set was. And knew what a straight leg raise was, but she didn't know how to actually the quad set where she was even where she was supposed to feel it. So getting the getting that mind body connection back to feel it in her quad and not in her patella tendon, it was huge for her because she even before our session she could she was repping she like she would rep out twenty straight leg raises and not be fatigued whatever at all. Uh, but then I when I got her to feel like what her quad was. And then do a straight leg raise. She was shake. She literally was shaking after three of them um, because she wasn't using her quad to pull her up. She was just kind of using using whatever she could to stabilize the full knee. So post op or anything like that, I would say like literally just just decrease swell like decrease swelling, get the muscles around it, the activation in the correct way, and restore restore that range of motion is where you're going to start off with. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Those are very common themes early on in the process. Now, that time, uh, we recently talked with this, uh, with Dr. T on the podcast about this, that time can be a very difficult challenge, I'll say, for especially high-level athletes from a mental standpoint. Yeah. What I mean by that is, you know, they just lost total control of their situation. They used yeah. to, be able to go out and play sport. They can pretty much do whatever they want, right? Some of these individuals are basically Superman. And now they might be dependent on someone else just to even move their arm for them. Yeah. Um, so from your experience, what has been helpful for the athletes that you've worked with mentally during that time? And how do you help them continue to focus on, you know, eyes on the prize kind of thing here, looking at the big picture and looking at yeah. ultimately 
return to sport while in the initial acute phase of things. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think one thing, especially for an athlete, they got guys that like to compete um, and they don't like being stationary. Um, one thing that's super helpful and this is helpful in a multi in a several different ways is finding things that they can do. So it's like, for your, for instance, like you're talking shoulder or anything like that, that might be in a sling for six to eight weeks. I, they still, they still have their lower body. Uh, so if we can figure out how to, how to, how to keep training and their lower body, lower body, I mean, that's going to keep them in, that's going to keep them in activity. That's going to keep, they're going to be able to keep their heart rate up and obviously safely. So if they're in a sling or anything like that, we're probably not running, running too much where we're getting a lot of, a lot of movement in the shoulder as well, but we can, we can find ways to either load the lower body in different ways as far as either, either through machine weight, that's not going to be putting a lot of pressure on their, on their upper half or with a bike or anything like that. I think keeping them moving and keeping them kind of in their, in their same domain that they're, that they're in a lot, a lot of throughout the day. So like in a, in a weight room setting or on the, or on a field where they're surrounded by their peers, um, I think helps out a lot, but the second, like the second part of that too, is like, there's, there's some research on like acute versus chronic workload, where if you completely shut down, shut down an athlete from all level activities from, uh, from injury post-op or anything like that, you're going to have to take, it's going to take a lot of time to build up that, that chronic workload again, when they're, when they're ready to introduce that, that tissue back into into lifting into into sport or anything like that so one thing one thing that's beneficial again is is making sure the rest of the system the rest of the body is still going through a workload so that you're not having to you're not having to introduce stress to the whole body again when just for one body part that might be need to be at rest at the time if that makes sense yeah it does make sense and um you know i completely agree with you and there's even some stuff coming out um at least in the acl rehab world where the importance of training the non-injured limb, yeah, uh, you know, it, we continue to see more and more about that. Where even just doing like, you know, basic leg extension, leg curl, single leg machine on the other leg helps the operated leg. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of a bit of a rabbit hole and sidebar to get into the physiology of that. But in general, continuing to do whatever you can for people will help them physically, but it's also going to help them mentally and yeah but even and even in that realm too like if for an acl or something you, like you still have the upper half too so the lower lower part you can do you can get creative a little bit as far as how to how to stay aerobically aerobically fit or anything like because obviously you're you have smaller smaller muscle mass so you're gonna have to to go a little bit better go a little bit more or, or and be cognizant of of uh smaller muscles at work isn't going to be as aerobically demanding and stuff like that, but you can still, there's still three fourths of the body that you can, you can work on um, and not keep them completely out. Yeah, completely agree. And um, one of the things we also talked about with Dr. T was the importance of setting goals, like large milestone goals, which is important for rehab as we progress from phase to phase, but then going back and breaking it up into step-by-step, -step, you know, pieces that we have to achieve in order to get there. So, you know, with your experience with football and baseball, I'm kind of looking at shoulders, elbows, and knees being the three primary areas that get operated on, whether that be, you know, shoulder yeah. labrum, rotator cuff, uh, Tommy John in the elbow, up to like ACL or meniscus in the knee. So with those 
three basic body parts in mind, what kind of things would you look for from a criterion or timeline or whatever progression you're using to get someone from what we call phase one to the next phase of your rehab with them? Yeah, I think uh, thank you. I think I think he uh, he's absolutely right as far as like having having goals in mind of where we need to get to, and then I think also working backwards plays a big role in this. So like we need to like knowing where we where we want to get to like get the athlete back to place that goes a long way. So with that being said, usually usually almost set our long term long term goals as far as like hey I'll, this is the this is our criteria that we need to hit in order to return to sport. Now, what do we need to get to? When do we need to hit landmarks to progress them a little bit? So, like you were mentioning, knee and knee and knee, shoulder and elbow is being three of them, and you can you can kind of look at them from a from a lower body standpoint and upper body standpoint. So, from a lower body standpoint, what do we need to what check marks do we need to hit to make sure that this athlete is completely ready ready to go back to sport? So, at the very at the very lowest level. We have to make sure is from a knee standpoint, we have to make sure the knee is good. So does it have, does it have full range of motion? Does it have full strength? Um, again, look at that from obviously range of motion, knee flexion, knee, 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 knee extension. Are those, are those back to normal what they were pre pre injury? And then if you don't, if you don't have the pre injury data on them, how much do they compare to the other side and be very picky with this too. Cause it's very easy just to look at it and say like, yeah, it's fine because it doesn't have a hitch in it or anything like that. But if you're, if you're picking up a one or two degrees, one to two to five degree difference on a knee extension, I post ACL, you might be missing quite a bit there. Um, so being picky on that and then strength wise, different strength, strength measures, as far as isometric, isometric quad, isometric hamstring, uh, isokinetic testing, as far as quad hamstring being 80%, um, from previous level or from uh, opposite side. So those are just your, your kind of base low level, like, Hey, we need to get this back to pre-injury for at the very, at the, the very least to return them back to, to sport. But then you also have to kind of think of, okay, that's, that's essentially getting them back to what they were pre-injury, but why do they have that injury too? So, and this is, like I said, it's kind of returning to sport, but then you can make mile markers from it. So, um, what's their foundational movement look like? What is their fundamental fundamental movement? Are, are they missing are they missing a toe touch or a squat or a rotation component? Uh, and then what components of the body is missing that? We probably need to restore that and definitely not be painful with any any foundational movement. So um, we need to make a check mark on that. Um, what's their what's their motor control look like? Their Y balance end range is their left side different than their right? If it was, if it was pre-injury, maybe that was a component that might be, might be, um, that might have led them to injury. So we probably need to, we probably need to normalize that as well. Um, especially composite or asymmetry and composite score together too. And then also, ex ex especially for an upper body, sort of like shoulder and elbow, what's their upper quadrant Y balance look like? Is it symmetrical? Is their composite score good? Um, if, they, if it's not, why is it not? Is it, is it because they're not fully at full strength yet, or is it because pre-injury they're at they're at risk even prior to it? And then should we we should probably get that normalized again? And then again, starting from the knee with a with a looking at the at the knee, what's their hop testing look like? Their single um, single leg hop, their their triple hop, 
and their triple over crossover um, are those symmetrical. If they are, if they're not, we probably need to get that symmetrical as well. Because each and when you start to look at this, each thing is kind of building on itself. So like what you, what you'll see a lot is for an ACL or anything like is there if there's triple leg hop is asymmetrical is there y balance asymmetrical and there's one's at a one's at a little little more control than the other one or at a, at a slower pace is it is it is that where the hiccup is? is is that where we need to stay and then also quality and quantity so for a triple jump single leg hop or hop sorry um single leg hop um are they going into valgus with it can they prevent that um or they might be they might be symmetrical, but their but their surgical legs keep keep going keep diving into into valgus. So truly, they might just be they just might be they might be able to produce the power, but they can't control it then. So so all these things you're kind of looking at and goal in mind getting them back to sport. And then even when you check these objective steps off, you still have to do the progression of return to sport as well, making sure that they're not getting sore, making sure they're um, they're able to complete sport specific activities in a progressive ma manner so that again it's kind of like the acute chronic stress uh, workload is we're not just progressing and saying like hey you're good on this so just hop into sport there still has to be the progressive return yeah i completely agree and i love all the different batteries and outcomes that you just mentioned there nate is you know there's really a lot that goes into sport and i think that a lot of practitioners at least from my experience forget that, right? Like you threw out the Y balance test and the Y balance test isn't something that we should just reserve for ankle or knee injuries. I think the Y balance test, even the lower quarter one, I mean, has value and insight that can be helpful for upper extremity injuries, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there's a, I think there's a study on the Y on the lower quarter having a, having a correlation with UCL injuries. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing. It's like if we're missing that or skipping that, then we're ultimately doing the athlete a disservice because we haven't really looked at or assessed everything that they need in order to return back to the sport. And I know it can be a lot. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to do every single test under the sun in order to feel like you're ready to return an athlete to sport. But ultimately, you need to make sure that you assess everything in some manner in some fashion and while we talked or well you just mentioned a lot of different objective focused things right like yeah. the numbers on the y balance you also mentioned that it's not just about how far they get or how far they can jump left versus right on a jump test or a hop test or that sort of thing it's about what it looks like when they're doing it you know yeah. compared to what you would expect them to be doing or other athletes in a similar sport to be doing and you know unfortunately you might not have been able to get a good depiction of what it used to look like because you know if your pre-op assessment was them hopping on a torn ACL and now they're hopping on a functional ACL I'm sure it's going to look a little bit different um I, I would say the other piece too is just the importance of the subjective side of things and this is something we continue to bring back up in the podcast is, you know, plain and simple. If an athlete looks at you and says something's wrong or it doesn't feel right or it hurts, you know, they know their body better than you do. You can't, you know, explain what they're feeling 100%. for yourself. So there's an important conversation that needs to be had. I think about 
just listening to the athlete and what they're telling you as you progress them to, you know, a higher level sport or return to higher level sport. Activity. Yeah. And there's, uh, yeah, I, I 100% agree on that. And that's a, there's also the like FABQ and fear of awareness of, of movement and some of the psychological, ed, psychological edge that should, that should probably get you kind of thrown in that objective, objective stuff. But what you were saying in psychological, psychological or not psychological sorry what there was what they're what the athletes telling you on subjectively goes a far distance um like i remember there's there's been times where um all these all this objective data and, I, and i'll and that i test um and i i remember sitting in front of an athlete saying hey like you like you're passing all this stuff you you're good and I, this is me trying to like like thinking like not like try to pump them up and kind of like get ready to go. But like, like they were a little, they were a little hesitant about stuff. And I was just like showing them like, Hey, like this is, and I, it was after a major surgery too. I was like, Hey, you're showing me that you're ready. Um, that everything that I'm looking at is showing me that you're ready, but they kept, they kept kind of voicing like, Hey, like it just doesn't feel, it feels like I have to hold back on stuff. And this is, and this is like a baseball player coming back from a UCL. And it's like learning from that experience as far as like, hey, they're feeling something. Like sometimes, like sometimes the greatest power that you can have in, in, in empowering the athlete as well too is like listening to them and figuring out like, hey, sometimes it's not all objective stuff. Sometimes like their body is telling you like maybe the tissue is just not healed as well as what it should be, but we could um, quote unquote hack their body to pass some objective data um, that it's all encompassing. So you have to, you have to talk with the athlete to figure out like if they're, do they actually feel ready to go? And if not, if they don't feel ready to go, you have to meet them where they're at still. Um, and that's completely okay too. That's actually what you, I would, some, I would almost argue that that's what you should do. Um, because they're, like you said, they're the ones that know their body. They know if something doesn't feel right or not. Right. And as you basically just alluded to, is you can't just put the same timeline uh, for healing on every athlete, right? Like maybe yeah. an ACL graft kind of integrates a little bit earlier than you expect, or maybe it takes a little bit longer. Well, same thing could be true for the UCL, or, you know, maybe they had a more complex labral repair than someone else and they need additional time. And you have to be able to break down and, you know, individualize your progressions and interventions accordingly. And if you're not, then once again, I feel like you're doing the athlete a disservice by trying to tell them and lump them in with yeah. everybody else because no two athletes at least in my experience have presented 100 percent identical thus far no not at all and that's a that's a that's the that's the fun of what we do is we can we can try to objectify everything and everything that we want to which is which is what we should to have the best uh, the best data to go off of but then like like you said no two treatments going to be the same because guys are going to present a little different and then they're human as well, so their tissue is going to change change a little bit different than somebody else's. So you get a, you get a, you can kind of get a get a get an adapt per person and figure out figure out something new and then grow as a clinician as well. Then after you after you work with them, definitely. And you know, as we're talking about all these different objective measures and tests and different things that you can do, uh, <clears throat> I know someone listening or some people listening, they might say, "Well, you know, I only have." 40 minutes with my patient in an outpatient facility. I can't yep. get all of that in one or two visits even sometimes, or I might not see my patient that long or, you know, how else can I see 
progress or track progress without doing formal testing. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on basically looking at the interventions that you're doing on the day-to-day as a sign of progress, right? Like how do we go about looking at something like um, maybe a double leg squat? Maybe the first time we do it with a post-op ACL athlete, um, you know, they're 45 pound, just empty bar. And before you know it, they're at, you know, 185 for reps. How do we go about looking at our interventions as a way to show and track progress? Yeah, and I think uh, I think one thing that I that I that I've figured out as far as like I, I can't say I figured out it's like completely this is what it what it is, but <laughs> obviously we we grow as we go. But one thing that I've that I've done, especially for the objective data, is like try to pick up as much as I can each time I see them. So it's not like hey, I need to pick up all this stuff, this whole this whole list of stuff that I that I mentioned earlier at one time. I um, because you still have to get treatment done. Um, especially if you're only seeing them once a week or twice a week, um, you don't have every day to do it. You can, you can pick up like, say, um, so like hop testing or something like that. Say, say they've, they've cleared, um, found it like you're, you, you've progressed them enough that their, their knee range of motions all the way back, back to normal. Their knee strength is, is back to normal. Their foundational fundamental movement, functional movement screen, they may be limited in their squat or something like that um or but at least no pain or something like that and we're we're starting to starting to load the joint a little bit um you may be able to just like have them like test one test a squat test a squat at the beginning of it and then say like we look at hop testing and then we look at um a squat but then that hop testing may like we probably not probably don't have to test that every week or every every time we see them but you can look at the next time you come in, like, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's look at the white balance or something like, or something similar. So like you, you can knock off different things at different times <laughs> to get the whole kind of checklist of what we need to, we need to hit. And then once you get a higher level, we can kind of cross off the low, the lower, lower stuff that we don't necessarily have to hit every time, but then we check in every once in a while to make sure that they haven't, haven't gone back. Yeah. But, I like that. I like that a lot. And, uh, the other thing I've seen people do lately, and I'm starting to incorporate more of it as well, is include RPE in your sessions, right? Yeah. It's very simple to ask someone, hey, zero to 10, how difficult is this today? Yeah. And, you know, plain and simple, if you're pl- looking at the long-term game, you know, someone could start with 10 out of 10 RPE squatting 135 and end with, you know, RPE at two squatting 225 for reps. Yeah. Same thing for, you know, any exercise that you're doing is it's a very quick and dirty way to show progress, but it's also a great way to get immediate feedback on how your patient is doing that day. Um, Yeah. Talked with people in the past that use some of the different outcome measures and tests that you mentioned almost on a daily basis as a way to track where that athlete is, Mm -hmm. um, you know, is on that day. Right. Like I think it was Joe DeFranco and I could be wrong about this that uses hand grip strength as a way to yeah. recovery. So yep. you know, squeeze a thing, get your baseline. And then every time you come in the gym, squeeze it as hard as you yeah. can. What's our number and how do we adjust our load accordingly for that session? Yeah. And there's, there's, if you, if you start getting into tech, um, there's a lo- there's a lot of different ways you can do it as far as like, if you have force plates or anything like that, you can look at, you can just look at it. You can look at a, a counter movement jump and, and track how much force goes into the plate um, hand grip, hand grip has actually a pretty, 
um, like you were saying, a pretty substantial um, correlation as far as like how prime the system is. Your body is ready to is ready to accept load that day, and it, and you can tell you can see the fluctuations if you track it from a day to day. You'll definitely see fluctuations of how how drained a guy is, how much sleep that he had, um, what was his recovery the day before, or anything like that. As from a from a performance metric or performance how how ready they are for that day. Right. And if you're in some of these different high level settings, whether it's with a professional team or professional athletes, or maybe you're just, you know, lucky enough to be in a private setting where you can work one-on-one with five or six patients a day, and that's a full caseload, you can really dive into the numbers there and kind of look to correlate numerical data on that kind of stuff with their um, performance uh, metrics as well. You know, I think a lot of people wear, you know, some kind of fitness watch or smart watch or something like that today. You can get all kinds of data from sleep to heart rate variability yeah. in an Excel sheet real easily. And it would be kind of cool to explore the overlaps between what's going on for them physiologically, what's going on with them on the day to day when they come and see you. And then what happens in the long term or the big picture from that, right? Are yeah. the athletes who are sleeping less the ones who struggle to recover more or, uh, you know, from a surgery or the ones that are more stressed or, um, you know, what have you. And while I can sit here and make assumptions on those things all day long, uh, you know, again, we don't know it to be true until we prove it. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. And like you, you hit the nail on the the head as far as like wearables or anything like that, you get so much information from them. And as long as, as long as it's consistent with it, so like as long as you're not going from like a Garmin to an Apple Watch on a different day and and stuff like that, that can provide quite a bit of quite a bit of information that we can use to help program that to pro to help program an athlete at least. Definitely. And no. then you meant you mentioned RPE. I was gonna say that's one big thing too. Like as far as squatting or anything that um, for throwing, like on a return to throw as well. Um, it doesn't have. I can't say it has like the best correlation with it um but as far as like somebody that doesn't have tech like and say they don't have a radar gun that you can use which would probably be the gold standard as far as like how 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 much of an effort somebody's throwing you can still use rpe um to start throwing progress back as or to start the throwing progress or cut them off as far as like hey we're only going 60 feet today or hey we're only going we're only going 45 50 feet today like that in itself is going to be a limiting factor as far as like how how much intensity they're going to have. I'm glad that you brought that up there, Nate. I mean, as we kind of transition into more of the sport phase here, that return to throw for baseball or football and the return to football or return to soccer or whatever for a knee injury, those are huge steps and huge milestones and ultimately we need to have some kind of progression set up where we can take someone from level one to level 100 if that's how far they have to go with that. So where do you like to start and where do you like to, you know, progress people or how do you progress people from either a return to throwing or a return to lower extremity dominant sport, I'll say, um, after one of these injuries in the late stage kind of rehab process? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think, like I said, you have to kind of have the end, end, end goal in mind and then pair up what you're getting objectively into their, their, um, training to get them back into sport. 
So if we're looking from a, a typical, like just a, uh, uh, just a progression, so sport progression. So they're say, say they're hitting everything that I'm, that I'm checking for objectively at the time. So like if I'm looking at a return to sport progression, then we'll say kind of like your, your lower extremity um, return to sport. Um, what I, one like big thing, big things that I'm looking for is like, one, do they hit all the objective measures that I'm looking at? And two, like the return is for like, so can they handle, you have to, you have to be able to handle more load than body weight prior to, prior to doing anything like very dynamic. So can they, can they handle isometrics at a little bit of a higher load, especially well, starting with body weight? Can they, can they handle isometrics body weight, um, in different positions in different, different, uh, patterns. And then once they're, and then again, I'm matching all this stuff to up with how they're moving. So like, um, if their if their FMS isn't clean or if they're if they're having having struggling touching their toes or something like that, I'm gonna I'm gonna adjust their strength training appropriately to to meet them where they're at. But so are they matching? So to begin strength training, do they do they do they have foundational functional movement? Is that clean? Is there is their joint uh, moving moving to its full what it should be moving as? And are they are they respectively strong in that in that joint to to begin load? So then you start loading it in the weight room because it's controlled and you can control the force, the, the amount of forces that are going through it. And they should be able to get back into a, a full, full strength program and accept the load before you start doing any type of dynamic exercises, meaning like hops, jumps, or anything like that. So like, and of course there's going to be, there's going to be some gray area in this that there's, there's nothing that's going to be like, absolute of saying hey you have to be able to squat your squat what you did prior to injury before you can do any hop, hopping or skipping or bounding or anything like that but from just a just an on paper standpoint um can you can you do stuff under control under load and then start progressing strength from there once you once you became integrated back into the full strength 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 department um can you start can you start implementing speed to it and from either either load acceptance to or so force absorption or force production typically typically depending on depending on the injury you would want to you would kind of want to learn how to absorb force before you produce it because you always have to you kind of have to absorb it once you produce it so um like i said pending injury on that and then once you can do once you can do pre-programmed stuff when you're back into so that so some single leg stuff, wiring some sorry some double leg double leg stuff, then you're implementing some back to single leg stuff. Um, then can you work on pre-programmed athletic movements? So um, or change of direction would probably be the better better term on that. So if you go if you can go linear, then you can start going into change of direction. But of course, like I said, it's got to be pre-programmed. Um, where the athlete's not making having having to make any decisions on it, where they just know what they're going to do prior to their prior to that um, that movement. That way, that way you're taking their their mind most of their mind out of it um, and just letting their body move. And once they're good, they get good with that, then you can in introduce the um, kind of random acts. So then away, that way they're having to make decisions and they're not ready to they're not ready to they're, they're not, it's not like I said it's not pre-programmed. So now it's random. And then once you have once you have that, then you can start adding some variables to it and adding some perturbation and stuff like that in 
in movement and then int introduce them back into their their skill what they're trying to learn that's kind of more like a, a like a lower body type type scenario yeah i um i love that progression you just outlined focusing on the lower body there nate and you know i think plain and simple as you mentioned you have to get the strength first because if yeah. you're strong then other things probably won't go well uh we'll just yeah. put it that way yeah and, and that's it and that's the same way as far as like match you got like matching the athlete with their with their strength as well well too so like it's like if you're trying if you're trying to if you're trying to load somebody and their body's not in a in a capacity like for like a squat for instance like and they can't and they don't have the hip hip flexion ankle dorsiflexion stuff like that for the squat it's like you're not loading that joint appropriately anyways so like getting the foundational moving down and then getting and then getting the strength behind it's gonna gonna go a very long way right and then taking it a step further as you mentioned the importance of mastering the ability to slow down and decelerate before we overemphasize the importance of acceleration you know mm -hmm. i think everyone wants to be a faster athlete or jump higher or be more explosive but from an injury standpoint most of the non-contact knee injuries i see uh at least speaking for myself here are deceleration or slowing yeah. down when we start to change direction and yet for some reason we don't emphasize that in a lot of strength programs and training programs. So spending a lot of time on that is certainly a good thing. And as we mentioned before, the importance of as we progress back into those things, double checking, how is your athlete feeling? How does it look like they move? How does it look like they land? And then as we progress, um, doing so in a systematic way, kind of like you just outlined, right? So, yeah. you know, before we return to run, maybe we start doing double leg box jumps at some point because, hey, you know, running is a single leg force absorption activity by nature. And if we don't feel comfortable doing that on two legs, one leg probably isn't going to go well. And hey, you know, before we add in multi-directional, um, you know, movements, let's master forward and backwards first. Hey, you know, you just mentioned uh, earlier about the importance of making sure your athlete knows and understands what they're going to be doing. It might not hurt to throw in a little visualization and say, hey, look, you know, I want you to picture yourself doing this. Here's what you're going to do. Now do it. Hey, can we have the PT yeah. demonstrate it just so they, you know, eliminate their guesswork. I think everything you've mentioned before on that progression is phenomenal. And I think that a lot of people often missteps and you know i know i've missed steps myself in the past and it's okay to not be perfect but you know we ultimately have to be able to look back and reflect and learn what we have to do in order to be better providers and better serve our athletes yeah 100 percent. that's where that's what i think like having a good system of system in place for yourself um and knowing what you prioritize before you hop to the next step is goes a very long way as a clinician because i know i know several different ways Right. And when I look back on myself, um, where I almost felt like when I see somebody, I, I felt like I was like, oh, they just need, they just need power in their leg. It's like they're presenting to me every time it seems like they, they are trying to jump off their, their left leg. They, that's when they always, that's when they always have the problem. Um, and I, and like even knowing like a great system that I had had set up as far as like I listed out everything that I needed to get under like the base layer stuff and they may be missing one or two there. I was like, 
was a younger clinician. I was like, well, they just need the power. I was like, I think I can just, I think I can just work on the power. Like keeping yourself true to your systems typically goes a lot further than when you try to, you try to make changes on the fly because like I can look back on those instances where I was just like, all right, we'll just do a whole, whole bunch of like jump training with this guy because this is what they need. And I think I did them a disservice because the lower level stuff that that was missing was what they needed. And they weren't, they weren't getting better until I, until I circled back up on the, the ankle dorsiflexion that the guy was missing before we started power training, um, which ankle dorsiflexion and then squat and then do the, and then, um, strength strength training and then the power like that would that went a lot quicker than me just trying to be like hey just hey we're gonna have to jump a lot <laughs> so so learning learning from that that experiences those experiences have, have come a long way definitely and recognizing that you know some of those interventions might not be the cool sexy things you see on instagram all the time yeah. uh but they're essential you know and even just kind of revisiting your progressions and almost rebuilding them in some senses, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you might have a progression for bridging, for example, where you go yeah. double leg bridge to double leg with Breuger modification or adductor squeeze or whatever to single leg to this, to that, to the other thing. And you might find that you have to add in a little variety uh, in that progression, right? Maybe you yeah. have to have them hold their heel up off the ground and do a double leg heel float bridge before you move on or something. Um, similar to that yeah and always just constantly a system of you know revisiting your own process of progression um which i think that will serve you the best in the long run we mentioned, 100%. We mentioned and especially when you know especially when you know where you're going so like where, where you're trying to accomplish because there's been many times where i've been seeing a seeing a person in a in a clinic where i was like i look at all their movement patterns and i look at where their strength deficits are and i look at where their range of motion deficits are and I was like, I think, I think they're going to, I think this, this exercise right here is going to benefit them. Um, and I, and I'll take them through it. And it, it looks like they're going, whatever, whatever the exercise it was it, it, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter because it's like, as soon as you see them do it and then you kind of recheck and it doesn't make a change, whatever, whatever you were, whatever change you were trying to make or what I was trying to make, it didn't, it didn't happen with that exercise. And I was like, all right, well, I guess they, I thought they were a little too lower level than what they were. So then you make the adjustment on the fly and be like, progress it a little bit see if you made a change if you did great that's where they're at um progress it a little bit more see if they see if you made another change and then keep going where the athlete's at so it's a constant battle constant battle of like hey are you making a change within session or are you not if you're not just change it up you were wrong that's okay it's just as long as you don't stay there um yeah. just keep meeting the athlete where they're at and then you'll you'll get better you'll get better success from it completely agree and um, you know, I don't want to get too lost with the rabbit hole I'm about to start on, but, um, you know, just understanding what you're doing and why you're doing and what it's doing, right? What does three yeah. sets of 10 mean? What is that going to do? What is a single leg unloaded bridge going to do for someone over a double leg barbell hip thrust? What are you yeah. doing with your intervention and why are you doing it? And what benefit do you expect that to provide? Because, you know, a lot of the exercises, or I'll even argue that a lot of PT in general is neurologically based, right? You know, yeah. we have a lot of um, movement rewiring or movement hardware or neurologic based approach to the exercises that we do. Um, you know, you're not going to convince me that three sets of 10 clamshells is going to change anyone's life or that that alone is going to, you know, boost their glute strength or anything. 
Um, but if it changes some kind of neurological firing pattern and makes them move better, then there's value in it. Yeah. Um, now, Which, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, we can go down a, a rabbit hole on that <laughs> as far as like, so like uh, if, you, if, you're, if you see somebody for six weeks, any type of, oh, we know on, on motor recruitment versus hypertrophy of a muscle, um, it takes four to six weeks before we see any type of muscle change as opposed to neural recruitment. So if we're actually working on neural recruitment for, and we only see them for six weeks, see patients for six weeks, are we truly working on strength or are we working on neural, um, neural recruitment? So if we're doing neural, if we have them for six weeks and we're working on neural recruitment, are the three sets of 10 really what we need? Or is it, or is it, yeah, there's a whole different, there's a whole different rabbit hole that we can go down as far as programming, programming for patients too. We'll save that rabbit hole for next time. I really want to get into the upper extremity progression next, if you don't mind, Nate. You know, we did a lot of good work there hammering the lower extremity, but how about someone, maybe they had a shoulder or an elbow or whatever, um, and they're looking to progress back to that throwing. What's your kind yeah. of steps that you would take there? Yeah, in some in, in some cases it's gonna it's gonna look the same as from the lower lower half as far as like just the just the landmarks. So like obviously like the same same lower level impact is going to be just like the same as like um, you have to restore the full full mobility of the joint. So say so we're looking at elbow, um, do they have full flexion? Do they have full extension? Do they have full pronation? Do they have full supination? Um, and then do they have the the strength on there? So um, grip strength, shoulder strength. I'm um, looking at all that, and then also still some movement patterns and and everything. But if we're looking from it's like I don't want to I don't want to miss that we're looking at that that objective data too. But if we're looking from a pure like return to sport um, progression and, and still looking at the objective data, I'm still going to be looking at that objective data while I'm getting them back into 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 sport and um, stuff like that. But from a pure like return to sport, um, from to get them prepared to throw, like say we're going to get them to throw one again, you have to be able to accept the load. So. Um, I usually like to get my get my athletes back into upper body strength training before we start to throw because that's still that's still load but in control. Uh, you're not doing it at a high speed. You're not doing it that dynamically. You're you're controlling the load either eccentrically, concentrically, isometric, um, and you can you can make a case for however you however like the the however you wish to to program where it should be like isometric, eccentric, and concentric and stuff like that. Like you, they should be getting back to strength training before they start to load. But then once they once they've done that, once they've done that and you're still, like I said, you're still looking at their objective data, their grip strength, shoulder strength, range of motion, foundational pa patterns, um, motor control. Uh, before they start throwing, you're still gonna have to get them into some sort of um, what I call like arm arm patterning. Um, so what I really like, what I really enjoy is like you, obviously you can have different things of co-contraction of like, you can have plyo balls up against the wall, tapping on there, um, to get co-contraction, open chain stability through there. Um, one thing that I, that I feel like is almost a must before I, before I throw, throw anybody, anybody is I like to use Indian clubs, which is, which will use, which is, gets you back into, um, throwing the throwing motion but you're not releasing anything so you're, go, you're going into going into circles you're going into um kind of like your, your Indian club step backs your slams and swings um where you're still having some control but you're now you're starting to get a little little higher intensity intensity um uh movements in there 
And then um, also some like kettlebell stuff where you're holding on to some um, dynamic or it's offset and everything like that, where you're still working on kind of grip strength. So once they demonstrate that to me, as far as like, hey, they can accept this load. And then also you can kind of do some like um, non-throws too. So uh, we just don't release a ball. Um, that's going to that's gonna be kind of a little bit of a self-limiting. Um, one thing I will say, I do like to do a lot of like opposite hand throwing um, prior. So like after a UCL or anything like that, once they're, once they're able to start kind of, kind of running, um, I'll start doing some, like if they're a right-handed thrower, I'll start doing some left-handed throwing because that's one, that's it for a lot of different reasons. One is just like, um, same thing as what you were talking as far as left-sided ACL or opposite side ACL, ACL training when you're getting back into it. There's some, there's some neurodevelopment from cross, cross, cross sides, but then there's also kind of the, you do so much rotation from right side. It's probably good to even it out from the other side, especially from a, from if they can't be, if they're not throwing with their, their current side. Um, but then once I get to throwing, you're going to have to start building that workload. So uh, typically starting, depending on the level, high school, whatever, 45, 45 to 60 feet is typically where I start a, a thrower um, and then start progressing from there. Um, volume, distance, intensity. So looking at, if you have a radar gun, look at, use a radar gun to, um, to correspond like how, what the intensity they're throwing at. If you don't have a radar gun, you can use RPEs, you can use distance, you can, you can use, there's some, some of use like throwing into a net as opposed to throwing at somebody to, to decrease their, their RPEs, um, and then starting to build tolerance from there. So one thing, one thing you look at, if this is a major um, major injury, you might want to start looking at that. Well, as far as the, the acute, like I talked about, kind of the acute chronic, chronic workload ratio, you can have gross body that way, but then you can have the tissue itself. So like localized, so global, global um, acute, acute chronic, and then you have local acute chronic. So you probably don't want to increase too much. Like there's always that 10% rule, which is disputed a little bit, but you don't want to you don't want to increase stress at the, say it's a UCL, you don't want to increase stress at like more than 15% in one, one week to the next by volume or distance. So tracking number of throws and number of distance and how far you're throwing goes a long way into progressing the next, the next week or the next day or anything like that. So then once you, once you start doing, once you start progressing distance, then you have, then you have, when you start long toss, and then if you're able to accept, accept long toss, then you start going into mound work and then back into considering hitters and, and uh, game situations. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're, um, what you explained there, Nate, is it sounds like we start with that base level of strength and then we kind of progress it to the point where the strength becomes a bit more, I'll say specific in comparison to the demands of the sport. So yeah. where do we need concentric motion in a throwing um, you know, at a throwing arc, where do we need eccentric motion? What muscles, how are they going to be firing? And then we hammer that from a strength standpoint and then slowly reintroduce and progress back. Um, and I like how you mentioned the importance of starting at like a comfortable distance and throwing and then progressing up to long toss, you know, um, hypothetically or theoretically speaking, 45 feet is a pretty short distance for a base yeah. to be thrown. Um, especially when you look at some of the outfielders that have to throw the ball 300, 400 plus feet 
And, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the long toss is an essential element of pitchers as well. I mean, there's pitchers that do a lot of long toss to build yeah. up for the arm. And you, you'll see you'll see certain guys do different things. So this is kind of like meeting meeting the athlete where they're at too. So meeting, meeting a pitching pitcher where they need to get. So there's a lot of there's a lot of pitchers that don't necessarily throw past 120, 120 feet. They'll get all their they'll get and this is this is pitcher preference. Um, they'll get all of their um, high intensity throws on the mound. So they'll they'll say like, hey, I don't I don't typically go past 120. Um, but then you also have some guys that will throw out to 200 plus um, from a pitcher standpoint, and um, and that's the only time that they'll feel good. Now, whether um, whether they're doing themselves justice or not, you have to figure it out, figure it out. But that, but you also like it's their livelihood too, it's their body. They're the ones that know when they feel good and stuff like. Especially if you're working at a high level, high level guy, even on a professional level. If, it's, if you're working with like a professional pitcher who made it to the pros and they throw out to 250 the day before a game, like going to be hard for me to tell them like, Hey, you're doing it wrong <laughs> or anything like that, especially if they made it that far. So um, giving them the tools and everything like that to know how they, re how to recover from that, like depending on what maybe, maybe it's just as simple as like, Hey, instead of 250 the day before your game, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll do that another day. Um, may go a long way in the, in the development of them and the injury, injury prevention from them as well. But um, when they're younger, like um, like a high school athlete or something like that, high school, middle school, and they're starting to throw one, uh, like 60 feet might not be that low level for them. 45 might actually be a good starting place for them, especially if they're just starting to, starting to throw and they're just trying to get the arm mechanics down. But um, just depends on the age and depends on depends on the athlete. Yeah, definitely. Going back to what we talked about before about the importance of individualizing your approach. And, uh, you know, Nate, I feel like we could probably talk about this all day long. Um, you know, there's so much detail and information to, you know, get from considerations when an athlete is returning to sport. Before we kind of start to close out and wrap up, though, I have one more really important question is yeah. these different tests, all these different progressions are amazing they're incredible and most of the time they work yeah and then you get an athlete who comes in and maybe it goes well for a while maybe they progress back maybe they even get back to sport and then it doesn't always go 100 percent picture perfect from there maybe there's yeah. regression maybe you have to take a few steps back so what would you do? i don't want to use the term failure but what would you do if you run through all of these different things? The data looks good. They feel good. And then you get them back to the sport and then something happens and it doesn't go as you expected it would. Where do we kind of yeah. go when we come up a little bit short from where we expected we would? Yeah. Those situations are always kind of hard. Um, like you always, so that's when you, that's when you kind of, that's when you, that's when you take a lot of time, like content, not contemplating, uh, like, like looking at yourself, like what, what went right, what went wrong, um, seeing how things you could do differently and stuff like that, um, and what you can change and different things. So you're you're already you're already evaluating, self-evaluating, like what you could have changed, what you could have done better, what you could have done stuff like that. If some some things don't go go as planned, but then like within that within that situation too, 
um, speaking with the athlete may go a long way. Um, so that's when, like we talked about earlier, if the athlete maybe, maybe, maybe they were, maybe they were just, they weren't as confident as what they presented as. But you see a lot. You see a lot of athletes though, that come speak to you, and they're they're just like, yeah, I was ready to go like eight eight weeks ago, but you kept holding me out. And then they get on the get on get out into get out of the field, and things aren't going right, and they come back, and they're like, yeah, to be honest with you, I really wasn't feeling that great, but I wanted to get out of the field. It's like finding finding out where the downfall may have been, maybe. Um, or maybe if you missed it, maybe you were a little lax on your testing and everything like that. But then also understanding within yourself that there's a lot more, there's, we're trying to control a lot of different variables, but we're still not looking at everything. So like, did they, and that's where the, the, um, uh, reflection comes from. So like, or did we educate them enough on sleep and recovery, um, and, um, eating nutrition and everything like that. If we, if we were just looking at our musculoskeletal objective data, but not educating on any of that. And they went back and then to find out that they weren't, they were only getting four hours of sleep the entire time you're doing that. You're every time you're rehabbing and it went out, well, then maybe it's a sleep problem. Um, or if they're eating Cheetos every day for their lunch, then maybe that was their problem. I don't know. Uh, but then also, like I said, take for granted, we're dealing with humans as well. So we're not going to be able to control every, every variable, but we can, but we can at least control what we can control, but still learn from the experience of like what, like there's not, I don't, there's not too many times where I, where I discharge a person and be like, what could I, and not think of like, what could, what could, what could I have done differently? So if there was a setback or anything like that, there's a lot of self-reflection going back of like, Hey, what's, what's different and how do I improve upon this? I think that's the, I think that's probably a very good thing to have so that you get better as a clinician and then you can help the next person that comes in front of you. What you just explained is what separates the good from the world-class clinicians. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned you yourself do it and that's what makes you so effective. And I think that's probably in part why you had such success working with the high level athletes, Nate, is you can't just, you know, run through the motions and then skip the reflection phase because yeah. You know, we call it the practice of medicine for a reason. We don't have all the answers. We don't have right. it figured out. And, um, you know, I think in that process, too, it's important to note that, you know, you are not like, I'll use the term failure now. You're not, you, you shouldn't consider yourself a failure if you run through this whole rehab process and that sort of thing and they go back to sport and it doesn't feel 100%. Yeah. That, that's not on you in every case i mean unless you blatantly do something ridiculous like you know like like return someone to sport post-op acl two months after surgery yeah. like unless you do something like that you know some of these things are normal yeah uh, you know it's normal to be a little bit fearful the first time you play a game after a major surgery it's yeah. normal for someone to have a little bit of discomfort the first time they go back yeah. uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you as a clinician have failed the athlete uh, right as long as you are taking the time and taking the steps that you need to turn around and say what could i do better so that the next time i treat an athlete with this i'm one or two percent more effective and as long as you can 100 as long as you continue to do that, I think at the end of the day, you can sleep good at night and you're serving your athletes very well. Yeah. And that's, 
yeah, I think I think you said it very well there. As long as as long as you're getting yourself better, like like you're not going to be perfect with any, everybody that you treat. Um, but as long as you're making strides to get you, become better, I think you're I think you're you're on the right track for at least at least becoming at least obviously at least becoming better because you're trying you're trying to get better. So um, so yeah, I would agree with you would 100 percent on that. Now, Nate, as we start to wrap up here. Uh, do you have any kind of connections or are you on social media or how can people find out more about you or reach out with questions and see what you're up to? Yeah. Um, so I have a Facebook, um, Instagram and Twitter. Um, Instagram is at integrated dot performance is my Instagram. Um, Twitter is at Nate underscore Denning. And then Facebook is just integrated performance. Gotcha. We will link to all of that below in the show notes. So if you didn't quite catch that, you can just click there and check out everything Nate has to offer and everything that's going on over at integrated performance. Nate, do you have any kind of last minute closing thoughts or closing remarks that you want people to really take away from this? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think the main thing that we, that we kind of touched on was just making sure that you like discover your system out that you that you have and abide by it and then constantly kind of just uh just make tweaks to it so so that you know where you're at where you're wanting to go with your um with your clients so that you're getting them to their maximum potential but then know that you're always making changes based off what we just talked about as far as like if you don't have a successful outcome how can you improve your system how can you how can you get better from a clinician and definitely reflect on on each each person that you're working with to to better yourself so that you can give the most to your most of your most of your clients. I think that goes a long way. It definitely does. Nate, really appreciate all your time today on the weekend nonetheless. Thanks for uh jumping on and thanks for all the insight and knowledge that you shared today. Yeah, thank you, Dan. I appreciate being honest. Great talk, great talking with you. Can't thank you enough for this. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.